Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Good Life Podcast with Mike Safosnik, coming to you live yet again from beautiful Jack Dempsey's Bar in the heart of Midtown Manhattan, around the corner from the Empire State Building. I've been going back and forth on how to introduce today's guest. Whoever's watching knows who it is. It's easy when I have on an athlete, an author, a travel guy, a chef, or an actor. I'll just recite their stats, their famous games, their favorite dish, what books they read. Today's guest doesn't really fit into any of those categories. He does fit into the author category, but I think he likes the fact that he doesn't fit into any other category. We live in a time where one moment, whether it be good or bad, defines an entire person's life. You can say that person's name and immediately only one thing comes to mind. You would think that Damien today, sitting across from me, would fall into that category, riding that wave, living off his quote-unquote infamous moment. But nothing can be further from the truth. In the past few years, his story has been told over and over and over again in books, movies, documentaries. Hopefully today we'll have a podcast where we'll live in the present, we'll talk about the future, hear about his life today, and not the horrors that all the people involved with this story endured from 1993 to 2011. Now, I know when I release this podcast, it'll be a whole new audience, thanks to Damien's very diverse following. So I promise to tone down the New York accent, and I won't speak so fast like I always do. When I interview someone from Kentucky, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, sl slow down? <laughs> so let me get the moment out of the way with a quick timeline. Okay. On May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys are reported missing. The next day, the bodies of the three missing boys were found in a muddy ditch or canal in a place called Robin Hood Hills in West Memphis, Arkansas. On June 3rd of that same year, three teenagers were arrested, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly. From that day forward, they all proclaimed their innocence. Yet at that time, no one knew anything about them, and no one really gave a shit about their voice. On March 19th, Damien Eccles was sentenced to death. On June 22nd, 1996, HBO released a documentary called Paradise Lost. The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. June 22nd, four years later, Paradise Lost 2, Revelations was released. And I think that was the start of the West Memphis 3 free, the West Memphis 3 movement. Sometime in 2005, this is the most important part, I walk into my New York Public Library, section 364, I go to the Truth Crime section, and I grabbed a few books. I see one that says The Devil's Knot by Mara Leverett. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm -hmm. Mara. Yeah, and I'm like, the devil's not. I'm like, oh, I'm not into any of that stuff. That's not me. But I grabbed the book anyway. Five days later, I bought 10 books. I gave them out to anyone who would listen to me. April 19th, 2011. I'm down in Virginia. My mom called me up. You won't believe what happened. After uh, over 18 years in prison, the quote-unquote West Memphis Three take a little-known court plea called the Alfred Plea and are released. Now sitting across from me, Mr. Damien Eccles, what is up, my dude? <laughs> Thank you for having me today. Talk for a second, because I need to, I, that was a long intro, I need to have a sip of water. Well, hopefully, um, excuse my voice, I've been sick for a while now, I think I actually have mono, so I'm not sounding exactly like myself, uh, bear with me if I start coughing or anything, but I'm just happy to be here today, thank you for having me. Now, I know you love talking about the past, but is oh, it cool yeah. if we don't talk about the past? <laughs> Maybe one or two questions. Can we just not talk about the same story over and over and you know, over again? You know, it'll kind of be a bummer not to talk about all that <laughs> again, but I guess if we have to, we can, we can talk about other things. Now, how about this? Your story is fascinating, and the more we talk, I think people would find that out. If they want to delve further, I would recommend, and let me know, the three Paradise Lost documentaries right. from HBO. Right. 
uh, The Devil's Not the Book. Yep. Also, your book, Life yep. After Death. Yep. And then The West of Memphis, that yes, movie. another documentary, yeah. Um, if you only have time, like if you're watching Paradise Lost, there's three documentaries. I think each one of them are like two and a half to three hours long. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty big investment of time. Uh, a lot of people love them, um, you know, especially people who are really into true crime because it goes, you know, really in depth and follows people around. Uh, but if you only want to watch one, uh, West of Memphis sort of combines all three of the Paradise Lost into one documentary and covers everything. Now, the one first, the one thing I loved about the first Paradise Lost, which I watched without any, like I didn't know who you were, and mm-hmm. you didn't have a voice. The documentary was completed, and it didn't say it wasn't one sided. Like, hey, those guys are friggin' innocent, or those guys are guilty. It really left you saying, what do you, what do you think about those two? Mm-hmm. Is do you think that's what helped the? movement of making people thirsty for more of you guys? I, I think it is. And, and the way I always approached it, you know, whenever they came to me, um, my attorney said, we've got these two guys from New York that want to do this documentary. Um, <coughs> would you want to do it? And the way I always looked at things like that, the way I always approach them is I've got nothing to hide. I've got nothing to cover up. So whatever they want to film, whatever they want to do, let's do it. So they brought them in and we just sat down and started talking. And I had no idea how those things were going to end up, how they were going to portray me, how I was going to look anything else. You know, like I said, I just figured I've got nothing to hide. And actually, I've never seen those documentaries. I watched maybe the first 15 minutes of the very first one, and I can see why they had such a big impact on people because when I was trying to watch it, you know, the only thing I can compare it to is like soldiers who were in Vietnam talk Mm -hmm. about having flashbacks. And that's what it was like for me trying to watch that. It felt like I was in the courtroom again. It felt like I was going through it all again. So I can understand why it had such a huge impact on people. You know, I literally did not know if I should be laughing or if I should be crying when I was watching that thing. So after like 15 minutes, this was while I was still in prison, Mm -hmm. I said, I I don't want to see this anymore. I'm ready to go back to my cell. So they took me back to my cell, and I never watched it. The third one I saw, it was released after I was out less than a month after I was out. So I was still in a state of deep shock and trauma. And I can remember being at the theater here in New York, going to see it, but I can't remember the documentary. I can't even remember what theater it was in wow. because I was so in, in you know, such a deep state of shock and trauma. And it's one of those things that I just kind of you know, have no interest in even now watching. I guess because kind of it would all be a rerun to me. <laughs> now, you seem like a quiet, you know, well-spoken, you seem reserved held back obviously it was all the years of in solitary confinement mm-hmm. was it tough coming out and being thrown literally to the wolves you were on every talk oh, yeah. show every radio show and still now you have to deal with it now oh yeah. is it tough i can't even describe what it was like you know it was uh you know keep in mind when i got out the last time i'd seen a computer was 1986 and it was basically a glorified typewriter for rich people you know there was no internet it was this huge bulky thing that you pulled up a picture and it took it like half an hour to print out and it made a lot of noise while it was doing it so i get out into this world where computers are second nature to everybody where you know everybody's using cell phones and cameras and i had no idea how to use any of this sort of thing not only that but i was in prison for almost 20 years i was i was locked up for 18 years and 76 days total um and almost the last decade of that was in solitary confinement so when i stepped out on the street i hadn't had hardly any human contact in almost a decade. So I went from no human contact to one of the you know, most densest populations in the world overnight. And to say it was a, a shock doesn't even come close to describing what it was. I used to walk 
for hours and hours every night up and down the streets of New York. And I would think, okay, once I've seen everything, then I'll rest. And then one day I realized, you can't see everything. You can spend the rest of your life walking these streets and you're not going to see everything. So it, it was, I can't even begin to describe like what it was like, even learning how to do things like use a debit card. I remember the very first time <laughs> I used a debit card, I went to Kmart to get Halloween decorations. I'd of been course, out of you have like to get, a month. Of course. <laughs> and I didn't, my wife gives me her card and she says, here, use this. And there's this little thing on the side of the register where you swipe the card. I had never seen anything like that before in my life. You know, when I went to prison, <clears throat> if you used a credit card, they put it on like this, this, uh, what do you call those things? Carbon copy yeah, machine? And they like, chunk, chunk. Yes. That was the last thing I'd seen. So I didn't know, am I going to have to know, like, James Bond's secret codes to use this? Or, or what the hell am I supposed to do? So it was a, the things that would, like, send me into a state of panic were the things that other people didn't even think about. And the things that would send other people into a state of panic were things I didn't think about. You know, I'd been out of prison for, like, a week, and all of a sudden this guy goes berserk on the train one day. He stands up and weirdos always target me for some reason. <laughs> they always zone in on me. So this guy stands up and he goes, you know, he starts screaming like right in my face. He says, um, if you step on my feet, so help me God, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you right here. And he's like screaming and everybody on the train's freaking out. And I was just looking at him like, and he sat down and he shut the fuck up. So we get off the train and my wife is like, are you okay? You know, are you all right right now? And I'm like, what? That's what I've been dealing with for the past 20 years. So that had no effect on me at all. But having to use a debit yeah. card would send me into a state of panic. So what are you up to now? I know it's a generic question, but what are you doing with your life right now? A lot of art. Mm -hmm. um, me and my friend David Stupakis, who came with me today, and another guy who lives in Chicago, um, Minton Matthews, we formed an art collective that we've been calling ourselves The Hand. And we just had our first uh, group show in Los Angeles in, uh, when was that? March 19th. March 19th was our first group art show together. Um, we're moving towards another one right now. Uh, not only that, um, but uh, I'm sort of a part of two art collectives right now. Um, also, my wife and our girlfriend um, formed another group called Chrysalis, and we're getting ready to have a show in Chicago mm -hmm. on uh, December 10th, the day before my birthday. So a lot of visual art. Yeah. And now it falls under the magic revolution. It does, magic revolution, yeah. Dave, when you want to talk, jump around the mic, Dave. Yes. Yeah, of course, man, of course. Now, you, you speak with such passion about art. Mm -hmm. What is it about art that makes you passionate? Like, when people talk in general, like, oh, I like this, you speak with passion about art. I just saw the way you, yeah. you stood up and your posture. And you, what, what do you love so much about art? It changes your life. If it's done right, it changes your life. You know, when I was, like I said a while ago, when I first got out, I was in a state of extreme shock and trauma and I went to have you been to sleep no more yet no it's it's this play here in New York I call it a play but it's not really a play it's this warehouse that's five stories tall and you go in and you're in there with two maybe 300 other people and you're all wearing a mask think eyes wide shut okay. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman so you go in and you're wearing this mask and if they know you're with other people they split you up because they say this is supposed to be an individual experience, not a group thing that you laugh and chuckle your way through. This is supposed to be something. I always say art was never meant to be something you buy just because it matches your couch. That it was supposed to be something that changes you in some sort of way. And if you're the same person when you walk away from a piece of art that you were when you approached it, then the artist has failed in some sort of way. Wow. So when I went to this thing, this was the first time I've ever been alone. Um, 
I go in there. I've been out less than a month. Keep in mind, okay, when you get off, when the elevator door opens on one floor, it's like you're in a forest in the middle of winter. There's all these trees that don't have leaves on them, and there's like smoke rolling across the floor, and the light is like this dim blue December lighting. You get off on another floor, and it's like you're in an insane asylum from the 20s or 30s. You know, there's all these clawfoot bathtubs, and these women dress like nurses that are walking around, and they're just sort of gliding, and they don't even acknowledge your existence. You get off on another floor, and there's a disco strobe light and an orgy going on right in the middle of the floor. So that was my introduction to the world. Like, welcome back, motherfucker. <laughs> so, so <laughs> exactly. So they put my wife off on one floor. They put me off on another floor, and I immediately went into that state of shock mm-hmm. and, and like panic. And okay, I've got to find my wife. I got to find her friend. Um, just pure unreasoning panic. And then something snapped in me, and I realized. If you don't take control of the situation right now, you're going to live in this state of fear for the rest of your life. You're going to be scared of everything for the rest of your life. So I made myself like fight that panic down and stop and, and start actually walking through the experience, taking it in. And it changed my life. And that's when I realized the power of art. It can really change your life in a lot of ways. You know, what really brought me back to myself and started the healing process for me was this piece of art, whatever you want to call it, a play or an interactive experience, whatever it is, in New York City. It changed my life and started healing me. And I realized that's what I want to do. I want to use art to change people's lives, introduce beauty, introduce magic, to give them moments that snap them out of the mundane, out of the monotonous, out of the mediocre, and let them experience something they don't normally experience in daily life. Now, I know I'm going to set you up for that little thing. It's when you have a comedian on your show and you try to set them up. So you paint with paintbrushes, paintbrushes right? <laughs> <Can you>? No. <laughs> Wait, you don't? I, don't. I do not. Here's there was the no segue to get no. that. I find this so fascinating, though. I, okay, when I first started painting in prison, I was not allowed to have paintbrushes because they said I could use a paintbrush to stab somebody with. Of course. So I had to use Q-tips. You know, the little cotton things you clean your ears out with. I use Q-tips, and I used to have all these big fantasies about, yeah, one day I'm going to be out, and I'm going to have access to all these art materials. I'm going to do all these amazing things. And then whenever I got out and I could actually use paintbrushes, I got a whole grip of them, all different sizes and shapes, and I took them home. Couldn't use them for shit. <laughs> Went right back to Q-tips. So even now, I still use Q-tips whenever I'm, I'm painting because it's what I got used to after all those years. Yeah. When people face tragedy or hardships or moments that, of despair that they never can come back, I'm always curious, and I don't know if you ever did. It seems like you did. When did you get your humor back? When did you get your laughter back? I know never 100%, but when? You know, I don't think I ever lost it 100%. Really? Um, I think even in, even in prison, I remember, you know, there were times, <laughs> there were times when the raw sewage would back up. And you would be sent in ankle-deep sewage for, like, two days at a time. And that happened one day. And, of course, you know, it's fucking miserable. Nobody wants to stand in ankle-deep shit for two days. But we're standing there, and something about the absurdity of it just struck me. And I started laughing so hard. And there was this guy in the cell next to me that was, like, extremely schizophrenic. And I hear him start singing that Leonard Skinner song, Can You Smell That Smell? (laughs) And I just started laughing so hard. And I asked this other guy, I said, okay, here's the thing. We're on death row. These people are waiting to kill us. But isn't there time still when you're kind of having fun? And he looked at me like I had lost my mind. And he says, fuck no. What is wrong with you that you would think any of this is fun? 
and so many people in there lost their sense of humor. Um, but there were times when it's just fucking funny. Is that, that was, I was always thinking, I always ask people, when did you get your humor back? I got to tell you something <laughs> that you probably wouldn't have found this funny. So after I read your book, um, I, you probably get this thought. You feel helpless. Like, I want to do, what can I do to help him? Mm-hmm. I can't call the people in West Memphis. Like, hey, I don't think he did it. <laughs> this book says he didn't do it. So I said, you know what? I'm going to send him something. So my mom's like, what are you going to send them, Mike? What, do you, what are you going to send them? I'm like, I'm going to send them some books. People should read. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get them some books. You know what? About like maybe POWs. Mm-hmm. And so my mom's like, wait, what? I'm like, I want to get them like POW books and books about people who are in prison. She goes, he doesn't want to. <laughs> like, why would you do that? And I always want to say, what would you? A package comes. Books. More books about being people in prison. Thanks a lot, bro. I really appreciate it. And I'm telling you, that's what I was going to do. I was going to send all different books about people being in prison. Believe it or not, people used to do that. I would get books all the time on, like, you know, John McCain when he was a prisoner of war or Nelson Mandela or whoever it is. And, I, and people would say, I hope this inspires you. And I was like, no, no, it don't at all. I said, you know, I live in prison. The only place I have to escape prison is inside my own head. So if I'm reading these books, then prison is even inside my head. No, it's not fun. <laughs> do, do you see <laughs> any irony in the fact that the way you dressed back then with the long hair, you, you're shaking your head yesterday, yeah. long hair, the black shirts, you know, the dark um, ambiance you give off. Mm-hmm. Do you feel it maybe some sort of ironic? And I always thought so. The people now relate to you yes. because that's how you are. But yet yeah. back then that made you an outcast. And that was – I hate to say the word downfall, but that was – I wrote down here – a detriment to you, the way you dress. Yep. Is, do you find it like ironic that now your appearance with the long hair, the sunglasses, the tattoos, people can relate to you now? I think it, it, it's a weird thing. Something happened in the 20 years that I was in prison where, you know, when I got out, all of a sudden Metallica is being played on classic rock stations. <laughs> At Yankee Stadium. At Yankee St- when the hell did that happen? So, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's weird just because... Somebody, somebody said to me one time, you know, like if they were me, if they would have been in the situation that I was in, whenever they got out of prison, they would have never wore black mm-hmm. again. They would have had a crew cut all the time. They would have never had tattoos. Um, do, aren't I scared? Doesn't that, you know, weigh on my judgment, any of those sorts of things? And I say, if you give up the things that make you happy, the things that make you who you are, the things that you love in this life, then you may as well be dead anyway. You no longer exist. You no longer exist. Exactly. So, you know, I have all these people now um, that identify with things like that. So, and it's, it's me, you know, I could not live with myself if I walked down the street wearing a pink polo shirt. Yes, that she knows. Yeah, you pop the collar. That's yes. not you. No, it's not. It's not. No. no. Be- before your arrest, you were 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Did you have any? And I'm not going to try to. I hope this doesn't come off like I'm looking down. Did you have any goals or aspirations of what you wanted to be or what you? You know what? I want to do this when I get older. Obviously, it was all derailed for the mm-hmm. next 18 to 20 years and forever. Your whole life took a different course. When you were 16, 17, 18, I know you had, you know, your ins and outs with everything. Did you ever have, like, you know what, I want to do this. Did you ever have any aspirations of doing something? Does it have to be something great and yeah. something that you wanted to do? Uh, absolutely. You know, from a very young age, I would look around at, you know, my parents and, and the people that lived around us, and I would think, there's got to be something better than this. You know, my mom had me, when I was born, my mom was 15 years old. My dad was 16 years old. And that was the lives of everyone around us. You know, I have a ninth grade education, and that's more than anyone else in my family has. If you look back through my entire family tree, I doubt you would 
ever find a single person that ever had so much as a high school diploma, much less a step foot on a college campus. So, you know, we lived in absolute poverty, um, absolute illiteracy. And I would look around me and I would think, there's got to be something better than this somewhere, somehow. I didn't know what it was exactly, but I just knew that something else had to exist or the entire world would have committed suicide. You know, people cannot live like this forever. And I started from a really early age, you know, probably when I was even 12 years old, thinking I wanted to create art in some form. I didn't know exactly what form it was going to be, whether it was going to be writing, whether it was going to be painting, whether it was going to be drawing, whatever it was. I just knew that somehow, some way, I wanted to create something that changed people. I never wanted to spend my life in a, you know, a cubicle doing a nine-to-five job or, or like my family did, you know, absolute back-breaking uh, manual labor day after day. I knew there had to be something else to that. I didn't know how to get to it. I didn't know where it was or, or anything else, but I knew there had to be something else. And I sort of had faith that somehow, some way, eventually I would find my way to it. And do you feel you're there now doing the art now? I do. You know, there's, there's always when you – we always tend to think in life that there's finish lines. You know, if I could just get there, I'd mm-hmm. be happy. If I could just get this job, I'd be happy. If I could just get this house, I'd be happy. If I could just marry this person, I'd be happy. So we always have these finish lines. But there aren't actually any finish lines. You know, you realize once you get to that place, oh, there's, there's – now what? What do I do now? So it's like, okay, I'm living in New York City. Mm-hmm. I'm surviving as an artist in New York. Um, so where now? So it's always like you've got to constantly have goals. You've got to constantly look for something higher, something better. I love, I love the no finish line uh, part of it because I always love the quote, perfection is the enemy of good. Yes. Yes, life it is. is. Life is good. I need a dog because I want my life to be better. I yep. need this to get better. So when there is a finish line, you reach the goal and you're done. And I, I just actually finished a book, and, it, and this, it has nothing to do with you. I'm not comparing you to Neil Armstrong, but Neil Armstrong said once he reached the moon, his life kind of – he was in depression. That was his goal in life, to walk on the moon. Mm-hmm. And then he did it, and it was over. So when you set that finish line and you eventually get to it, whether at the age of I want to be a millionaire, when you hit your goal, unless you become more thirsty, you're done. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you have to keep striving and keep striving. Yes. And I, I said on Reese, I want to visit every country in the world. That's mm-hmm. my true goal. It's going to take me till I die to do it. Yeah. But I'm never going to. St- oh, I visit everyone. I'm done. What the hell mm-hmm. am I going to do then? Yeah. Sit in a bar with Damien Eccles and talk about <laughs> talk on a podcast <laughs> as we're old. <laughs> you know, even for me now, it's like you know, like I said, we just did this show together in L.A. Mm-hmm. I've got shows coming up. We've got another one in L.A. Got another one. In- I've got like five shows coming up in the in the next year, probably. Uh, you know, right now I had somebody contact me recently, and and they wanted three of my pieces to display at. The royal palace in Bucharest. No. So even even now, it's like there's there's got to be more. You know, it's like even when you reach that point, I'm like, all right, what's ne- what's next now? And I think for me, I missed out on so much life. You know, almost twenty years that I'm even hungrier now mm-hmm. than most people are. It's like I'm constantly wanting to tackle the next thing. I don't ever want to stagnate. I don't ever want to stop growing. I don't ever want to stop moving forward. I always want the new thing, the next thing. One more question. I want to take a break because I have to go to the bathroom. We've been drinking water because we're talking so much. The tattoos. We all, listen, we have tattoos. Dave has tattoos. Sean needs to get some tattoos. I hate to say, what's your favorite tattoo? Why all, why all the tattoos? Is there a reason? Because I, I'll tell you this. I had a couple. I got this tribal band. Mm-hmm. I like getting tattoos. My personal thing, 
it's who I am. It's not like, oh, what are you displaying? I like the way tattoos look. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the paint a little bit. I, what is your reason for all the tattoos? Because they're all over, and they're very detailed, and they're very specific. Why all the tattoos? Number one, it makes me feel safe. You know, as crazy as that sounds, no, no, I, I believe it. It feels like you've mm-hmm. got on a suit of armor. Yep. You know, even if you here's the thing, I have no compunction about getting butt naked at any time because it's like, <laughs> even if I take off everything, it's like I've still got my armor yes. on. And you know, it was also like when you're in prison, they take everything from you. You know, you know, at one point I was even shackled to a chair and, and I had my head shaved because they even take your hair. The only thing they can't take from you is your skin. Um, not without killing you. So for me, it's a way of keeping the things that I love on me at all times. Um, you know, and then it's, it's also, like I said, most of my tattoos are, are done by someone who's very dear to both my wife and I, you know, someone mm-hmm. who's a, a big part of our lives, big part of our family. Um, so it's like having that connection at the same time. For me, it's all about personal connections and about that suit of armor you know me and dave go and get tattooed together and it's like a thing that you know if you take a photograph with your best friend you can always lose it it can always get deleted um but if you get tattooed together you've got it forever you're never going to lose it it's never going to get destroyed it's always with you and even if that person is on the other side of the world you look at it and there's still a piece of them that's with you right there and you know what i love most about tattoos listen i have a couple of really bad tattoos i have like chinese letters on my hips from a long night out what are you gonna do but you know what i love people like oh horrible tattoo but you know what at that time this was the coolest i remember getting that tattoo i'm like this is the greatest tattoo like at that moment and you know what you look back and like you're like, oh, my God, that looks horrible. But you yes. look like, what a great night that was. Oh, yeah. What a great time. Look who I was with at that time. Yeah. Listen, no one gets a tattoo. I'm so sad. I want to do this. No, you, you go to tattoos at good moments with good people, and you remember it. You yes. agree with that? Yes, you do. Absolutely. I always tell people, if you go and get the greatest tattoo on earth, but your tattoo artist is an asshole, that's what you're going to remember yeah. every time you look at it. <laughs> if you go and get a, a tattoo that's not exactly perfect, but you had a really good time while it was happening – that's what you're going to remember every time you look at it. You know, we were at a bathhouse recently. Me, uh, me and Dave were at a bathhouse, and we're looking at each other's tattoos. And I ask him, I say, "What is that on your arm? Is that like a dragonfly or a locust or something?" And he starts laughing, and he says, "No, it's actually supposed to be like a tribal armband that's so screwed up now." And then he was getting tattooed by another friend of ours, and the guy was like, "You want me to cover that up, right?" And he was like, "No, I want to keep it because that was like my very first tattoo." So it's even though you can't even tell what it looks more like an artistic bruise now than an actual tattoo. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So tattoos. I think people who don't get them don't understand what it's like until you start getting them, and then when you start getting them, it becomes like an addiction. I don't know anybody, anybody that stops at one. No. Once you get that first one. Then it's like it sets you on a, a lifelong journey, and and people always say this crazy shit to me, like, "Well, what are you gonna look like when you're 80?" And I'm always like, "Look, motherfucker, when you're 80, you ain't gonna be winning no beauty contests either." You know what, you know what they say? Yeah. <laughs> Show me an old man with tattoos, and I'll show you an old man with stories. And it's yep. true. Listen, I want to walk down. That kid must have been badass. They don't know that I wasn't badass ever in my life, but at 65, like. That guy with that, he must have been pretty bad. I was badass. Yeah. I was. Yeah. I, let's take a break so we can go to the bathroom. Hopefully everyone's enjoying. We'll be right back. Welcome back to part two of the exclusive <laughs> Let's Not Talk About the Past interview with Damien Eccles. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. The biggest misconception about Damien Eccles is? Hmm. That's hard to say just because I honestly don't know what um, – 
a lot of people's conception of me are, but if I had to say one, I would probably say most people, whenever they come to me, they think I'm an 18-year-old goth kid just because that's what they saw on, you know, the Paradise Lost documentaries. You know, in a lot of people's minds, it's hard to conceive of me. You know, I'm almost 42 years old. I've got fucking arthritis, for God's sake. Um, so when most people see me, they don't conceive of things like that. You know, I'll still have people refer to me as the boys, you know, talking about me and the other two guys collectively. It's like in people's minds, for some reason, I am forever stuck as an 18-year-old kid that listens to only Metallica. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably what the biggest misconception is, I would say. Um, yeah, probably that. You, Just that I'm not 18 years old yeah, anymore. You're not? No, I'm not. I wish I was, <laughs> but I'm not. I remember when you first came to New York, I think the Village Voice or someone did an, an article on you. I don't believe you gave an interview. That was shocking. You didn't talk mm-hmm. about the past. Um, you talked a lot about tarot cards mm-hmm. and, if I pronounce in Wicca, are you still involved in that? Um, yeah. And what is – I don't want to say fascination because that sounds like it's a little hobby. What draws you to that? Well, for, for me, I fell in love with um, hermetic esotericism, which is, uh, you know, like for, – for, that's, that's a mouthful to say, hermetic esotericism. I um, wouldn't get into it just because I couldn't pronounce it. So, so. <laughs> most people just refer to it as magic, M-A-G-I-C-K. You know, it's like a slang word because it's, it's a lot easier to say. And it's just been a word that's been used over the years. But um, it's – I fell in love with it when I was probably 12 years old and discovered it in the public library for the first time. And, and most people in the West don't realize, due to you know crappy horror movies or whatever it is, that it's actually an incredibly beautiful spiritual tradition that's just as rich and vibrant as you know anything in the East. Most most people, if they're you know say they were raised in a, a Christian family and they whenever they grow up and they start looking for other things, they almost automatically turn to Eastern traditions. You know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, things like that. And they don't realize we have these incredible incredibly beautiful spiritual traditions here in our own culture that are just as rich and just as fulfilling and that's a lot of what got me through first off it was what drew me to the attention of the west memphis police department in the first place because they said this guy's a freak and no, you're in a cult that's what exactly. it was. <laughs> you're a cult yes, member exactly and second it's also what allowed me to survive almost 20 years in prison you know it, it involves a lot of meditation a lot of visualization a lot of you know energy work techniques um you know i could go into this for for hours it's one of those things that that i'm really really passionate about and it's one of those things i try to channel into art you know for me art and and magic aren't separate things they're very interconnected for me they're they go hand in hand they're the same thing i always tell people when i create artwork for me the artwork is almost like um a side effect of the spiritual tradition, okay. the spiritual practice. So it's just something that has been incredibly meaningful to me. And, you know, you, you brought up the tarot. The tarot, you know, it's one of those things that we think of as, you know, gypsy fortune tellers. Oh, let's go to you, boardwalk. And, oh, you have exactly. Be- uh, yes, let's see what yes. the future is going to be. Mm-hmm. I always tell people the tarot was never meant to be used to tell you what the future will be because nothing and nobody can tell you what the future is going to be because you have the ability to change it. What the tarot is is more of um, it's a mirror. You know, we create patterns in our lives in all different sorts of ways that we don't even realize. Patterns in the way we spend money, patterns in the way we approach our relationships, patterns in everything. But we don't even realize we're doing it until they become stagnant and we're stuck in a rut. So the tarot is sort of like a bunch of little mirrors that reflect you these patterns that you're creating in your life. Um, and if you like where those patterns have taken you, then by all means, keep reinforcing them. Keep doing them. If you don't like where you are in your life, if you don't like where those patterns have brought you, then the tarot can be a tool that you use to change those patterns to get you to where 
you want to be. You know, it's like that old saying, people say, if you want something else, you got to do something else. If you keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same thing. So the tarot is just like a meditation tool that helps us realize when we're doing the same thing and when it might be time to do something different. You really explain that more in depth. I, you know what? Listen, I'm a big reader. I try to read 52 books in 52 weeks. I try to travel the world and not go see every tourist thing. I want to see the culture. I want to see everything different. The tarot cards, when you say that to me, it's going to sound ignorant, and I admit when I'm wrong, I'm wrong all the time. I'm thinking, lady on the boardwalk, mm-hmm. here's five dollars. Mm-hmm. You're going to marry this girl. You're going to do exactly. none of it's ever came true. I'm yeah. saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's what the people show you. Of yes. course, and that's what yeah. they want to see. Yep. You have a voice now, which obviously you didn't have 20 years ago. You wouldn't have a voice unless the horrific things happened to everyone. That story. Mm-hmm. Are you ever put in a situation where, hey, I'm making a murderer came out. We need your opinion on this. Not just that. And do you ever get, I don't want to use the word harass because no one's going to harass you for it, but do people want you to jump on their, their, their mission? Like, hey, nonstop. Nonstop. Like, you hey, know, can you read this case? Yes. Can you read that? And is that frustrating? Yes. Does that weigh yes, a lot on is. you? Uh, it, it, you know, we follow each other on Twitter, so you've mm-hmm. probably seen yes. like a lot of the people that tweet at me and, and tweet, you know, all these various cases all over the U.S. And, you know, sometimes they're probably you know perfectly fine and they deserve attention to them sometimes they maybe not i don't know because the thing is i spent almost 20 years of my life in the legal system so the last thing i'm interested in is reading more case files um but it's non-stop for some reason you have a, a, a small group of people that seem to think that because i got screwed by the system that somehow it's now my job to be mm-hmm. fucking batman that i'm supposed to work on every single wrongful conviction case in the country. I'm supposed to dedicate my life to mm-hmm. these wrongful conviction things. And people, you know, th- th- you've got a small group of people that will criticize me. They're like, oh, you're doing art shows. You should be doing yeah. this. I'm like, is that going to pay my rent? Is that going to put food on my plate? You know, that's, that's not going to pay the utilities next month. But it's like people live in some sort of bizarre fantasy world where they want you to be what their conception of you is. And anything that deviates <laughs> from that all, they will turn against you in a heartbeat. You know, I'm going to give you the example. I try to relate everything back to sports. I love that athlete. I love that athlete. That athlete's at dinner with this kid. You mm-hmm. ask him for an autograph. No. What an asshole. That's yep. the biggest asshole. Yep. Well, he's having dinner with his kid. You have exactly. To, I don't want to use the word limitations, but I was always, I know people hit you up all the time. Like, hey, all the time. read this case about this kid who was arrested. It's like, okay, please stop. And you want to know, that's why I always give props to, um, we have a mutual friend, Madison, mm-hmm. who, uh, is it Matt? What's her name? Oh, my God. What's her name? Amanda's friend. Madison. Yeah, Madison. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, oh, God, she's listening. Sorry, Madison. Um, and it's Amanda Knox's best friend. Mm-hmm. And she moved to New York, and her life is dedicated. She's going to law school because she wants to help out wrongfully convicted people. Yep. And that, you know what? That's her mission, her job, because she wasn't involved in it for so long. That, that must just weigh on you, like, oh, my God, I was just an assistant. Let me get out. Okay, back into court. Hey, Wait, so what? Yeah. You know what? I'll have people come to me, like, say, the Innocence Project completely worthwhile organization. Mm-hmm. I applaud everything they're doing. Hope they can get all the, the help that they can get. You know, they've exonerated hundreds of people due to DNA testing. But they've come to me before and they're like, you know, we're having this big rally, this big Innocence Project rally. And we're going to have all these guys that were exonerated from death row. Would you like to come and be part of this? I'm like, hell no. You know, what do you think I want to do? Get together and kick it about the good old days? <laughs> no. The last thing I want to do is talk to a bunch of guys <clears throat> that were in prison. Yeah. No. <laughs> 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 you went from West Memphis, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. You don't get any smaller than that. Yep. To prison. Yep. To Salem for a little while. To New York City. Yep. That's a jump and a half. 
Yes, it is. What was it? Was New York City always a dream for you, or was it? Cause I know you, you you do shows now in Chicago. Was New York City always? Not the finish line, a goal. I want to live in New York City. You know what? When I was a kid, it was the opposite because everything <clears throat> I knew, I had never been to New York growing up in Arkansas. So everything I knew of New York was like, I don't know, Woody Allen movies. So I would see that and I'd think, oh my God, who the <laughs> hell wants to live in this, uh, uh, this hotbed of neuroses and weird shit? And then when I got here, I came to New York two days after I was out of prison and immediately I fell head over heels in love with it in a way that I never in a million years would have thought possible. This city, you know, some people would consider it sacrilegious or whatever, but this city is my savior. This city is everything to me. I love this city. Every time I go somewhere, for me, I always say the only reason for me to ever leave New York is to make me further realize how much I love New York. When I get off the plane going from somewhere, I swear to God, I feel like I want to start crying. When I see that skyline come into view, I want to get down and kiss the ground. This is my home. This place is, it's my heart and soul. I honestly do not think I could live anywhere else. Even if I get to the point where I'm thinking, oh, God, i got to get out of the city. I can't take another subway ride today. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. I'll, the second I step outside this city, it's like, i got to get home. I can't, I can't take this. You know, when I first got out, I came here two days after I got out of prison, and this was my first contact with the outside world, outside of prison. And I looked around me and I thought, oh my God, in the past 20 years, everything has changed. Nothing is the same anymore. It's a whole new world. And then I went with my wife with, to go back and visit her family in West Virginia. And I thought, oh my God, nothing changed. <laughs> this is the exact same place I left 20 years ago. So for me, New York is, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's got its flaws. Of it's course. got its, its bad points. It's got its hard points. But I think this is the best of the best this world has to offer. This is the center of the universe. This, and, and I like it also because I always tell people in New York, you either get strong or you get out. New York will not let you be weak. You know, if you're weak, New York will grind you into the dirt. And that's one of the reasons I love it so much. You know, most people in the it rest of the country. It challenges you. It yes, challenges it you. It yes. challenges you. I'll tell you, yes. my, my mom always says the same thing since I was little. She's like, I, I love New York City. I grew up in New York City. The reason why is you can walk to Central Park. She always uses the same example. And there'd be a guy worth $10 million mm-hmm. sitting next to a guy worth $0.10, cents, yes. both three in the New York Post, and they yep. don't give an F. They won't even yep. – and it just gives an energy. But you know what? It will defeat you, and it challenges you. Yes. You don't get like, oh, bo-. listen, you can never get bored either. You walk down any block at no. 3 in the morning. It's yes. pretty cool. Yes, it is. Okay. There's a few personal questions I want to ask you. Sure. And I think we did a pretty good job of not – not that we don't want to bring it up. You're not, a scared, you're not scared to talk about it. There's personal issues. This is my personal time now. Do you have any relationship at all? With Jason or Jesse? Jesse, not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, from from what I've heard, he doesn't have any contact with, with much of anyone. He, his father uh, is dying, from what I've heard. He still went right back to the same town that we came from in Arkansas, and he's uh, pretty much nursing his father on his deathbed. I don't know what he's doing for a living or anything else. The last I heard, he doesn't even have a cell phone. You know, he wow. has like no connection with the outside okay. world at all. You know, keep in mind, this is a guy that has an IQ of like seventy-two. So you don't expect huge things of him to begin with, mm-hmm. um, but it, it is still kind of sad. Jason, we still talk. Uh, we text each other all the time. We didn't for a short while, uh, but then, you know, like they say, blood's thicker than water. Uh, so we talk all the time. And, and he took the opposite route that I did. When we first got out, he started going to law school. He wants to eventually get his law degree and teach law and, and be able to help people who are in the same situation that, that we were in. Um, you know, I told him at one point, the last thing in the world I want to read is another case file. <laughs> he's the opposite. He's ready to dive into it. He does all the Innocence Project meetings. He, 
you know, does he's he's on a board. He's helped co-fund an organization in Arkansas called um, Proclaim Justice, where they take on wrongful conviction cases and do whatever they can to help people there. You know, get expert witnesses in to, to review the cases, things of that nature. So he went the exact opposite route that I did. True or false? When you guys needed, when the documentaries were coming out, people started to figure out now what's going on. You guys needed DNA testing. Yep. There's a million rumors because I remember reading that you and. Uh, Jason didn't talk anymore, you know, right. whatever. Um, did Is it true that uh, Henry Rollins did a tour just to pay for the DNA? Is that true? Because, you know, you hear the, all true. these. Wow. That is true. I mean, the so can you, you say? Cause I just the cut. state did not pay for one single penny of the DNA testing in our case. We had to come up with the initial round of testing, first round of testing. All right, think of it as concentric circles. Like the crime scene itself, like on the bodies, is, is ground zero. So you want to test the DNA there first. And then you want to test, like, the area around the bodies and then go with the area around that. Well, that very first concentric circle, ground zero for, for testing DNA, was going to cost $200,000. You know, we didn't have anything. I, I, my wife had to take out two personal loans at one point just to pay for, you know, legal fees and stuff like that. So we're like, well, there's no way we can do this. We don't know what to do. So Henry Rollins did a tour, raised the entire $200,000 just to pay for that initial round of DNA testing. Now, you mentioned Henry Rollins, and you're, you had famous supporters, mm-hmm. which, listen, that helped you cause a lot. And I, this is how I end every interview, and you, you heard it last time. Every interview I do, we're, gonna, we're not ending now. We're ending in a few minutes, but we're going to jump to this. You and I are out right now. You want to impress somebody. Who's the coolest person in your phone, wait, that would text you back? Because I got people on my phone who's cool as shit that never text me back. Mm-hmm. So right now, you want to impress a group like, guys, I can text and they're going to text me back. Who's the coolest person? If you throw a text, hey, what's up? They're well, writing back. I, I separate the coolest from the most famous. You know, I've got numbers in my phone right now. I could text Henry Rollins. I could text Eddie Vedder. I could text Johnny Depp. Uh, you know, uh, Peter Jackson. Those are probably the most famous. Yes. But the <clears throat> coolest person? Dave. Really? Yeah, somebody, somebody asked me recently. They were like, they said, if you could have dinner with anybody you could possibly think of, who would you go to dinner with? And they're thinking you're going to say, you know, Jesus or Gandhi or whatever. Yeah. Dave, we're just going to go and talk shit and eat veggie burgers. That's it. Plain and simple. Yep. <laughs> real, real quick, Dave, jump on real quick because you've been here. You're the, you're the one filming. Dave, say hi to everybody. Dave with the great tattoo. One, because this is nothing to do with the interview. I'm just curious. How do you guys become friends and what's... We had a mutual hey. friend at the at the time that we were me and Menton were came off of uh, doing a uh, two man show together and that and then we wanted to do right off of that we were so fired up from doing that two man show we wanted to do another uh, show right away and we were talking about ideas um, for that next show and we ended up talking to a mutual friend another mutual friend that we were discussing the show. Uh, roughly talking about the Salem Witch Trials, and then that mutual friend said, hey, we should get Damien involved. So that's that's how it all started, and then just blew up from there, and that's, you know, everything took off. How cute. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> one, yeah. one more innocent, quote-unquote, innocent thing. You were, Listen, numbers-wise alone, there's innocent people in jail. Numbers-wise, it, it has to be, you know, you were, did you ever think, obviously many times you thought, why me, you're in this horrendous situation, did you ever think, why me, in a good way? Why me did I – I don't want to say the word lucky. Why did I get chosen to do a documentary on? Yeah. Why did Johnny Depp yeah. – because, listen, there's a million, we'll say, celebrities who don't watch documentaries. Why did this come to Johnny Depp? I, I, I think I heard that – didn't Johnny Depp call Laurie and say, how can I help? Like, yeah. did you ever think – like, obviously, like you said, you never lost your humor. Did you ever think, okay, shit, I'm in jail. This is horrible. There's 
literally the shit on my ankles. But you know what? Am I lucky that so-and-so saw this? Did you ever think that way? All the time. Okay. All the time. You know, I would look at my life, and I always tell people I can look back at my life, look back at the past, and I can see how every single thing in my life was like a link in a chain that brought me up to this situation. You know, I looked at it as, you know, when I'm in prison, I've got these people around me that love me and that I love and that are doing, they're busting their asses, doing everything they can to get me out of here, doing everything they can to bring more attention to the case, doing everything they can to keep my hopes up, keep me from sinking down and dying in here, you know, internally, if not externally. Um, And nobody around me had that. I would see that all the time. And I would say, even while I was in prison, I would say, I am incredibly lucky. I am incredibly blessed, even more so out here. But in there, you know, I would see people who were at the very bottom of the barrel. You know, people think you've got it bad just because you're in prison, and you do, but there's levels of it. You know, you've got guys in there that have been there for 40 years who's haven't even had contact with their family or anyone else who nobody gives a damn if they live or die in there. And I would see people like that on a daily basis. So it would remind me how even when you think you're at your lowest point, there's still always going to be somebody lower than you. And there's still always going to be something in your life to be thankful for. No matter how fucked up you think your life is, there's somebody out there that would love to have your life. Your book, Life After Death, you just said ninth grade was the most you've ever gone to. Mm -hmm. You sit here now, beyond well-spoken. I don't think that the West Memphis uh, prison taught you English or taught you classes. Was Listen, you said ninth grade was the furthest you've ever gone. Your book is open, honest. It's not just one of those books like, I, I did this, I did this. It's a well-written book. You're well-spoken. You. Where did all that come from? Is it just from... Reading it, Stephen King novels. <laughs> oh, so, that's really? What I, yes, that's what I tell people all, all the time, and it sounds crazy, but it's 100% true. I learned how to write. For, I, I started reading Stephen King when I was like 10 years old. I remember my grandmother, she had a Stephen King novel, and I guess she thought that was appropriate childhood reading <laughs> or something. So she, she gives it to me, and I start reading it. And, and from that point on, I was hooked from the age of probably 10 years old on. And some of his books, uh, you know, like the Dark Tower series, I read those when I was in prison over and over and over. No exaggeration. I read the first book between 30 and 35 times in that series. Sometimes I would finish it and immediately flip it over and start reading it again until it got to the point where those characters felt more familiar to me than people that I had actually known. You know, they were in that cell with me. They were friends that were taking me on these adventures, taking me out of prison for a little while. So they became something that was very near and dear to my heart. So whenever I, I you know, I, I looked up after I got out, I looked up reviews on Amazon of people who were reviewing my book. Okay. And I come across this one review and this woman says, I kept having this nagging feeling the whole time I was reading this book that I've heard this voice before. Where is it? And then I realized it's Stephen King. And to me, that was the greatest compliment anyone could have possibly given me. The uh, person who wrote that was Dave. Dave. <laughs> <clears throat> On this gives, this gives me the chills, and it's, it's going to sound corny. I hate when people are overdramatic. On Cinco de Mayo, everyone's out partying, and your tweet was this. Today was my original execution date mm. in 1994. If it would have been carried out, I would have been dead 21 years today. Mm-hmm. I know – I listen – You've done a gazillion interviews, and I hope this one was a little different. It wasn't just so... Yeah, this one was actually fun. That, say that again, please. <laughs> this one was actually fun. <laughs> I'm going to ask you two questions about it. One, the time leading up to it. Mm-hmm. What do you... And it sounds so generic, but what goes through your head? What are you thinking? Like, I'm going to die for something I didn't do. Yeah. That's going through your mind. <clears throat> but also, and this is the weirdest part, you know, they, you get these court-appointed attorneys that you think know what they're doing. 
they thought that I was going to get like an automatic stay of execution that they didn't even have to file anything. So I got so fucking close to my execution date just because I had incompetent attorneys. <laughs> so I didn't even realize death is breathing down the back of my neck just because these guys don't know what they're doing. Um, so you think about stuff like that, you realize, oh, my God, I thought I was dealing with adults here, people who understood the situation, understood what they're doing. And you realize I'm alone. You know, if, if it comes down to me being strapped to that gurney and, and these people killing me, I'm going alone. I'm not going with attorneys. I'm not going with family. I'm not going with friends. I'm walking in there and meeting death by myself. And you realize for the first time how completely and absolutely alone every single person in this world really is so you know it's kind of a weird thing but it makes you realize how important relationships really are it makes you want to cherish the people who are close to you and and pull them even closer to you and make each other's lives as meaningful and as beautiful as you possibly can because when, when you're ready to face death, when you're laying on your deathbed, when you're ready to go, those are the things that are going to be important to you. Those are the things you're going to remember. Not the fact that you lost a, a basketball game when you were in ninth grade, but the trips you took, the Thanksgiving days you spent, the, the nights that you didn't even realize you were making memories and you were, those are the things you're going to have with you on your deathbed that are going to mean something to you. And it's almost cliche to sound things like, to say something like that, because you know it sounds kind of Hallmark Channel-ish. But I was actually really close, really close to death, and I realized it's absolutely 100% true. Those are the things that matter, and that's what I want to do with my time now. That's what I want to do with my life now. I want to spend it with my family, with my friends, um, with people that aren't necessarily biological family, but that are closer to me than my own flesh and blood are. Now, May 5th, do you get a weird feeling, or is it not that, oh, it's over, it's done, because this case is never done. May 5th, does it give you a little, uh, a little... Weird feeling. May fifth gives me a weird feeling, and also, strangely enough, August nineteenth gives me a weird feeling. August nineteenth was the day I walked out of prison, and I went on the last August nineteenth, and you can see in the little skeleton there yeah, the, the 19. nineteen in his eyes. Nineteen is a weird ass number. It's played you know all kinds of roles over and over in my life. You know, we were talking about even you know we did that show about the Salem witch trials. Nineteen people were hanged in Salem. It started off on September 19th when they started hanging people. You know, 19 just comes around in my life over and over and over again. It's a really bizarre number in both good ways and bad ways. You know, I see good connections and bad connections. So May 5th is odd for me, and August 19th is odd for me too. Can Will Damien Eccles ever have closure, whatever that definition is for you? You know what? I honestly don't know. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. Um, you know, I, I, I say I want the person who did this to be prosecuted. I want the truth of this to come to light because in a, in a certain way that would bring a kind of sense of closure, but at the same time it would not give me back the years of my life that were taken. So there's nothing in that regard that can ever bring me a sense of closure. Some things could probably help. Um, but I don't think anything will ever, you know, I, I always tell people when I came out of that prison, people say this stuff to me all the time that I, I can't comprehend. You know, people say, you were so strong. You see, No, I wasn't strong. They fucking broke me. They broke me over and over and over. They broke me in ways that I'm still trying to put myself back together from, in ways that I may spend the rest of my life trying to heal from. Um, this, this, I have to, because there's a great quote. Um, I'm a big quote guy. It says, 
if life didn't break you today, it's going to try again to do it. It's going to try again tomorrow to break yes, you, and that's will. what it is. Yes, it will. You know, I, as, as cheesy as it sounds, one of my favorite quotes in all of moviedom in what in one of the rocky movies he says that he has that quote about how it's not how hard you can hit it's how hard you can get hit and get back up and keep going and that's absolutely 100 percent true but my point was for me to get a sense of closure i would have to be completely and absolutely healed from all the places all the ways that i was broken and i don't know how when or even if such a thing is humanly possible 2 a.m., Damien Eccles can't sleep. What do you watch on TV? What's on your DVR? What are you watching to put you to sleep? You know, I watch very, very little TV. Me too. I don't watch much. I, I, I try. I try to watch all these things that people go crazy about, like, say, Game of Thrones or whatever the hell the latest craze is, and I can't get into it. Um, so the only things I really pay attention to on TV, and this is something people will crucify me for, I watch country music videos almost nonstop. <laughs> I put them on in the background. <laughs> I put them on in the background while I'm working so that music fills the house. And, you know, so I'm listening to fucking Tim McGraw and, and stuff like that all the time, nonstop. Um, the only shows I really watch, I watch, uh, there's a show called Rectify, strangely enough, about a guy who spent 18 years on death row and got out. Well, it was written by a guy whose wife that I knew while I was in prison. We wrote to each other for years. She died about a month before I got out of prison. So oh. her husband started making the show, and I would have never in a million years watched it. I would have thought, a show about a guy in prison? Last <laughs> thing in the world I want to see. The Huffington Post contacted me, and they said, well, you watch the show and write a review of it for the Huffington Post. I, I oh, crap, I don't want to see this. I sat down and I watched it, wrote a review of it, thought, I will never watch that show again. But something about it felt so real to me so familiar to me that i i felt like i kind of took a sense of solace from it you know it was like as crazy as it sounds because it's only a tv show it was almost like meeting someone who knew what you felt so i got addicted to watching that and i watched that show it's on hiatus right now waiting for the new season to come back was there something else there's not really i i find it you know the first year that i was out I was so shattered psychologically. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't watch movies. I couldn't read a book. I would read the same page of a book over and over and over and couldn't remember what I had just read when I got to the bottom of the page. So that's healed somewhat. But still, when I try to watch TV, there's a lot of mediocre crap out there that I just cannot get into. Yeah, I don't watch much TV. We're going to wrap it up with another question, too. What's next for you? Besides the art, is there anything else? No finish line. Is there anything else you're looking to do besides the art? Is there anything else? You know what? I want to put myself into another book. I want to do a – is there anything – listen, I know your mind's going a million – the way you – a lot like me. You want to jump around, tell yeah. a million different things. Yeah. What's next for you? Well, during the last art show, we came up with this concept. Like I was working with this publicist, and she said, okay, what is the story you're wanting to get out about this art show? What's the main thing you're focusing on? Not just to get people to come to the show, not just to get people to buy art, not to get people to appreciate art, but what's the number one thing that you want to come from this? And like I said a while ago, for me, ma magic, spirituality, and art are, are, are very interconnected, very intertwined. So I said, what I want to do is help educate people, help teach people what magic is. You know, about things like people who have never heard of what the tarot is, but they think it's a thing where you pay $5 to hear who you're going to marry. I said, I want people to see what magic really is so that the same thing that happened to me doesn't happen to someone else in the future and so that magic in general is just more widely accepted, more widely appreciated, that it, people know what it is and you can't use it to scare people anymore. She says, okay, what you're talking about is not an art show. It is a social cause. 
she said, so what we're going to call it is Magic Revolution. For me, that, that's what I really want to work on, is just getting knowledge of what these spiritual practices and traditions are out there, how meaningful they are, how beautiful they are, how they can enrich your life, how they can enhance your life, what they've done for me, what they can do for other people. And if I can do that in an aesthetically pleasing way, in artwork, that's all the better. But for me, you know, like I said, I fell in love with magic when I was about 12 years old. I'm still in love with it now, and it's the number one motivation behind pretty much everything I do. It's 78 degrees out, nice little breeze, sunny out. Mm-hmm. Where does Damien Eccles go to relax? What is your sanctuary that you're going to go like, wow, look at – you have nothing, nothing planned, mm-hmm. nothing going on. You can grab either a Stephen King book or just leave all your phone. Where are you going for an hour just to relax and zone out? What's your spot in New York City? Oh, I go to one movie theater in the city, and you know where it is because you drove me there one day. But for me, movies, I can watch movies even when I can't watch TV. Maybe it's because I know I just paid fifteen fifty, and so I've got to pay attention to this. But I like going to movie theaters because, number one, it gets me out of the sun. And I'm not a big fun in the sun type of guy at all. Wait, you're not a beach guy? You seem like you're no. a beach guy, no, no, volleyball no. guy. People always say, <laughs> volleyball guy, right? People always say, you should go to the beach. You should go to the beach. I'm like, what? There's dirt and water. I got that at home. What do I need to go there for? <laughs> no, the movie theater. I'll go to the movie theater or I'll be tucked into my house reading a book or I'm getting tattooed. Mm-hmm. Usually those are the big the big three things where I invest the vast majority of my time. Um, tattoos, movies, books. We're going to wrap this up now. i got to tell you, and this is the truth, when I first read the book, never in a million, like, you read a book, you're not real. You read, and that's, right. it's hard to say that because it sounds like shitty. You read a book, that sucks. I'm helpless. There's shit I can do. I'm not going to send you a POW book. <laughs> you're not real. You're a person on pages. Mm-hmm. You shut the book. Every few months, you oh, wow, devil's not. Hey, did I ever tell you that story about this guy named Damien Eccles in the West Memphis Three? You, you get released, mm-hmm. and I told you, I was down in Virginia. My, my mom called me on my cell phone, my big Zach Morris phone, and she's like, you won't believe it. I'm like, oh, my, that's awesome. Again, not real. He got released. Good. Mm-hmm. That's, I want him to be released. He, I don't think you committed the crime. I think the evidence really showed you guys didn't commit the crime. You're out now. For you to do the show with me, I just want to truly thank you, and I really mean that. I know you get offered a million times. Like, you turned down Howard Stern. Like, uh, thank you for coming here and doing the show. And I hope that I gave you something. I interview so many athletes. And I, as I'm interviewing, I'm like, shit, I'm asking them the same question because I want to hear it. It's a great story. You hit that home run in the World Series. I tried to, and I hope I made this interview somewhat different with non generic. So, where were you when it really happened? And I just <laughs> want to tell you, I truly thank you. I think you're, for where you were, for, 18, for half of your life. And that's, when people can't, and I know I'm just rambling on, people can't fathom that. You were, you went to jail at the age of 18. You spent 18, your other half of your life mm-hmm. yeah. was in prison. Yep. For you to come out and even not be angry, not just hate everyone and be anti this, F that, I hate everybody. To come here, you laugh. You made a joke about shit on your ankles. Like, <laughs> you're, the energy you give and the positivity, and I, I truly just want to thank you and I can only say best of luck, and I don't think you really need it because I see already where your mind is. Sometimes you see people down, down and out, and you're like, "Hey, man, best of luck," and you walk away like that dude has no shot. He has yeah. his mind's not where it is. He doesn't have a support group, yeah. and I know your support group at first was superficial. It was people on the internet hashtag West Memphis Three. Mm-hmm. You write a hashtag, the next day is a new hashtag. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yep. Who gives a shit? Yep. You overcame so much, and like you said. You're honest about it. You weren't strong. No, they beat me up. I, they beat you. 
and yet every day you're growing. And I just want to, one, applaud you for that. That's, it's an inspiration. It is. Thank you're you. an inspirational person when you read, like, shit's bad. My mom always says, you know, every family has issues. You throw all your problems into the middle of, like, a well. You're going to take your problem back in a second, and it's true. And I don't think anyone in the world would have taken anyone saying, oh, I'll leave that problem alone. <laughs> leave that problem. But I just want to thank you for coming on my show. You took an hour out of time. You came down all the way up from wherever you live down to Midtown Manhattan. You kicked it for an hour just having fun. I just want to thank you, and I really want to thank, wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I won't go into any of the details or anything, but you are an inspiration to me too. And the reason I wanted to do this is because, to me, this wasn't coming in to do an interview. Mm-hmm. This was coming in to hang out with a friend, have some fun, just basically kick the shit. Um, I didn't even, I honestly didn't even think of this as doing an interview. I mean, now that we're obviously sitting here and we've got microphones in front and, of and us. And it's on, it's on tape. Yeah, there you go. But I thought, I'm just going down to see this guy I know. <laughs> that's it. And that's what it's felt like. You know, most of the time when you do an interview, you're sitting there worried you're going to say the wrong thing, you know, worried about am I looking crazy, is my hair right while I'm on camera or whatever. And we get in here and it's just like, we're just hanging out. And, and also like, you don't know if I'm going to be like, okay, so, hey, by the way, where were you at this time? Because we got you. You know, no, really, there's always that one point. It's like, here's no, it's easy. at 11.17. You said you were here. <laughs> Listen, I, I can't thank you enough. It's, uh, I think the next couple of days I'm going to upload it. I think everyone, whoever's watching on Facebook, whatever. Um, send me the link, uh, tweet it out, and yes. I'll retweet it and send it out on Facebook and all that, too. My friend, an absolute pleasure, Dave. Of course. Nice meeting you. Thank you. And thank you to Jack Dempsey's. And Sean Riddle for allowing me to use his private space up here at Jack Dempsey's. <laughs> and thank you, everybody, for listening. If you like the show or ever, uh, subscribe. It's Mike Sappho on iTunes. I speak really fast. And just skip by all the sports ones if you want, all right? Everyone, thank you for listening. Have a great day.